Good morning, everyone. It's an honor to be with you, and it's great to be back in a place where people can find out that I went to Ole Miss and I get a, a hearty amen from the choir. I've been living in Georgia for the past few years, and I do not get that in Georgia. So it's great to be back in a place where I do get that. As, as Brother Matt mentioned, so I have a wife and a son. My wife's name is Katie. My son's name is Ford. And we recently moved to Tupelo from Atlanta. And in Atlanta, I was working for a church, and in that position, I, I spent a lot of time with teenagers who they had no spiritual background. I spent a lot of time with teenagers who they, they might come to our church with a friend, they might come to our church with a coach, but you know, they didn't come to our church with a family member, and our church was oftentimes the first church that they had that they had come to. And so I felt this great responsibility, but also privilege to lay a foundation for these teens because I, I was the first person to lay that foundation. And so that felt like an honor, but, you know, a weighty, a weighty honor. So I started to think, you know, for, for teens who they have no spiritual background, how do I give them just a firm understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Maybe another way to think about that, if you think about this fill-in-the-blank phrase, to be a Christian is to be what? How would you fill in that blank? As I thought about that question, I realized that that question is a bit like looking at a diamond. If you look at a diamond from one angle, you'll see a shape, you'll see a color. But if you look at a diamond from from different angles. You're going to see different colors, you'll see different shapes, and you get a better understanding of, of what that diamond is, and you get a better understanding of the beauty of that diamond. And I, this question, what it means to be a Christian, is a bit like that. And I realized that the Bible fills in that blank. To be a Christian is to be what? The Bible fills in that blank from a variety of different angles fills in that blank in a variety of different ways. And so my hope this morning is I would like to show you eight different ways that the Bible fills in that blank briefly, briefly. And, and my hope is that we will be, in, in having a more robust understanding of what it means to be a Christian and how the Bible fills in that blank, my hope is that we would be more able and more equipped to preach the gospel to ourselves as we go through life. I'll explain a little bit more what I mean by that later, but just so you know, that's where we're headed. We're going to look at eight different ways that the Bible fills in that blank. To be a Christian is to be what? And my hope is that as we do that, we will be more able to preach the gospel to ourselves. So let's jump in. So, our first angle is this, to be a Christian is to be united with Christ. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. The first verse that you see there that I have listed is Romans chapter 6. So I invite you to turn there with me. I think we'll have it on the screen as well. But Romans chapter 6, to be a Christian is to be united with Christ. Look with me at verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now that's a great question, and Paul's asking that question because of what he just said in Romans 5. Because in Romans 5, Paul says, you are, there are two types of people in this world. You're either in Adam, the, you're either in the first Adam, 
or you're in the second Adam, you're in Jesus. And if you're in the first Adam, you're condemned because of your sin. If you're in the second Adam, Jesus Christ, you were justified before God. And so it really comes down to not what you do or don't do that brings peace between you and God, but truly which Adam you're in, which Adam you've trusted in. And so this question makes a lot of sense. Apostle Paul is saying, well, if that's the case, if I'm justified because of which Adam I'm in, does that mean I can live my life however I want to live my life? So the question makes a lot of sense. You get to verse 2 and he says, no. He says, no, Christian, you do not continue in sin. Well, why? What's the why that he gives us? Let me point it out to you. So verse 2, he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And do you see his answer? His answer is fascinating and a bit mysterious. Paul says that a Christian does not continue in sin because a Christian is now united with Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be united with Christ. And therefore, since you were united with Christ, what happened to Christ has happened to you. Christ died, and through union with him, you have also died. He rose from the dead, therefore you have risen from the dead. Therefore, you continue in sin no longer. That's his answer. The reason a Christian does not continue in sin is because they're united with Christ. Now, we'll talk about this more a little bit later. That doesn't mean you live a perfect life from here on out. I just want to make the point, this is why, this is his answer. You're united with Christ. And you know, as you read through the New Testament, this language of in him, with him, united with Christ, it's everywhere. It's almost so common we miss it. But there's this language all over the New Testament that Christ is in us and we are in him. But one other place I want to point this out, you can look with me at Ephesians chapter 5. So in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is, is, is writing to husbands and wives and he's explaining how husbands and wives care for one another and serve one another in the context of marriage. And I want, I want to point out something here. So in verse 28, he's writing to husbands and he says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now think about what Paul just said. So Paul just said, that when a husband thinks about his wife and when he thinks about his marriage, he should think of himself and his wife as one new person. He should not think of himself and his wife as two separate people, but he should think of husband and wife as, as one new person, a new life. 
And then he goes on to say that's biblical. If you go back to the book of Genesis, we see the same thing, that a man leaves his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two become one. So that's what he's saying. A husband should think of his marriage as one new person. But then notice what he says in verse 32. That mystery, so the mystery of two becoming one. He says that this mystery, it actually refers to Christ and the church. That's what he says. So he says, you want to know what union with Christ is like? Look at a marriage. Look at how two become one in marriage. That's what union with Christ is. Now you think about it, that I think helps us understand truly how our salvation works. You know, if you look a little earlier in the book of Ephesians, Paul will say that every spiritual blessing that we possess, we possess in Christ. Which again, union language. So you think about how a marriage normally works. Let's imagine when Katie and I got married, I had $200,000 of debt. Well, normally the way that marriage would work, when we got married, that was no longer my debt. That was our debt, right? Well, let's imagine on the other side of that, my wife had half a million dollars in her bank account. Well, I'd be pretty excited about that because normally the way that would work is that's no longer my wife's $500,000, that's our $500,000. That's the way marriage works. What's mine becomes hers. What's hers becomes mine. It's no longer mine, it's ours. That's the way marriage works. And so you think about it, if, that's, if, if this is the way union with Christ works, so what that means is that when someone is united with Christ through faith, my sin becomes Christ's sin. His righteousness becomes my, my righteousness, which is exactly what the Bible says. And, and so union with Christ, it, it helps us understand how our salvation works. It helps us understand how someone like you and me, someone who is a sinner, who was created by God for a purpose, and yet we naturally reject that purpose. It helps us understand how people like us can have peace with God and how can, he can accept us wholly and fully. It's through union. What's Christ becomes ours. What's, what's ours becomes his. So that's our first angle. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. Second, to be a Christian is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. To be a Christian is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. You can look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. This is a key verse for, for this angle. Verse 19. I'll start in verse 18 to help 19 make a little bit of sense. So in verse 18, for through him, so through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we see that to be a Christian is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. That before someone is united with Christ through faith, they are a stranger and an alien in relationship to God and his kingdom. But once someone trusts in Christ, they become a citizen of God's kingdom. Now what's interesting about this one, so if we were to look at some other verses that, that help us make sense of what, is, what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom, well, the book of Philippians is going to tell us that our citizenship is actually in heaven. Hebrews is going to tell us that as Christians, we wait for a city that is to come. What's interesting about that is I'm now, so I am now a citizen of God's kingdom, but 
my citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. And the city that I belong to is not here now, I wait for it, it's coming in the future. So what does that mean for me today? Well, what it means for me today is that I'm a citizen of God's kingdom and I'm an alien and a stranger and an exile. I'm living in a foreign land here today. And, you know, anybody who has spent significant time overseas gets this. I, I worked for a college ministry for six years, and so most summers I would take groups of college students overseas for about six weeks. And we would talk about this concept always, that to be a Christian is to be a citizen of God's kingdom, because you get it when you're overseas. And you get that when I'm living, when I'm living in a place that's not my home, Yes, I can, I can have peace and I can be content, but it's never going to quite feel right. There's always going to be some things that are just a little off. Yes, I can have peace. Yes, I can have contentment, but I'm, I'm not at home. And because I'm not at home, I'm always going to be missing something. Well, the same is true for us today. You know, philosophers for hundreds of years have tried to figure out and they've talked about why is it that we as people we live in a world where we have these deep longings and cravings that cannot be satisfied in this life. And, and people have wrestled with that for hundreds of years. There's a, there's a famous philosopher who was not a Christian. His name was Albert Camus, and he really wrestled with this question. And he concluded, as someone who's not a Christian, he concluded that that is correct, and therefore what we have to do is just look that truth in the face and say, I'm not going to let that affect me. I'm just going to keep trucking along and I will not be affected by the fact that I live in a world where I long for things that I can't have. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty difficult to actually live that out. The Christian perspective, to me, feels far more livable, that we are citizens of another kingdom. And so we have longings that can't be fulfilled in this life, but they will be fulfilled one day when we go home. I find that immensely helpful. You know, another application for this one you think about how Jesus taught us to pray. Jesus taught us as his people, if we're Christians, to pray that God's kingdom would come and God's will would be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. So you think about that as citizens of God's kingdom. We pray for and we work to bring the influence of God's kingdom from heaven here to earth. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're commissioned to do. So as we think about our family, as we think about the neighborhoods that we live in, as we think about our places of work, as the citizen of God's kingdom, I'm called by God to seek to pray and to bring the influence of his kingdom to this place where I live as an exile. That's our calling. So number two, to be a Christian is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. Number three, to be a Christian is to be saved. To be a Christian is to be saved. If you were to look at Matthew 1, verse 21, I think we'll have that one on the screen for you. So Matthew 1, verse 21, we see here that Jesus was going to be named Jesus. And the reason he was named Jesus was because of what he was going to do. He was going to be named Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus received the name that he did because he was going to save his people from their sins. Now if we look at some other verses, if we look at Romans chapter 5, we see that Jesus 
saves us, not from our sins, but actually from the wrath of God. If we were to look at Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5, it's going to say that by grace we've been saved. Well, saved from what? Well, let's look at the first four verses. The first four verses of Ephesians 2, they tell us that you and I naturally were dead in our trespasses and our sins. And naturally what we do is we follow the world, we follow our own passions and desires, and we even follow the devil himself. So you think about what, what does Ephesians 2 tell us about ourselves apart from Christ? It tells us that we are spiritually dead and that we're slaves to the world, the flesh, and the devil. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, when we were dead, he made us alive. By grace, we've been saved. So what are we saved from in Ephesians 2? We're saved from spiritual bondage and slavery and death. So you think about all this. To be a Christian is to be saved. It's to be saved from our sins. It's to be saved from the wrath of God. It's to be saved from spiritual death. <clears throat> so I've been fighting a cold the past few days, so please, please forgive me for my radio voice today. <clears throat> so as you think about that and maybe application for that, an application for that is, is pretty simple. No one is too far from the reach of God. You know, if you're here today and maybe you've had a bad couple of days, maybe you've done something the past few days that you deeply regret and you feel as if you are beyond the reach of God's mercy, well, to be a Christian is to be saved. No one is out of the reach of God's mercy. We can't help but see that when we look at this angle. So number three, to be a Christian is to be saved. <clears throat> number four, to be a Christian is to be a, is to be a new creation. To be a Christian is to be a new creation. Look with me at Ezekiel chapter 36. This is an amazing promise that the Lord makes to the people of Israel. So Ezekiel 36, I'm going to start in verse 25. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now this is an amazing promise. God makes this promise that what he's going to do with the people of Israel is he's going to sprinkle them clean with water. And then he's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He's going to take out the heart of stone and he'll replace it with a heart of flesh and he'll put his spirit within them. And the result will be that they will walk in his statutes because they want to walk in his statutes. That's the idea here. Now what's so cool about this passage, so if you fast forward to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. And he says to Nicodemus, if you are going to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. That's what he tells him. Now, Nicodemus is confused by this. And, and Nicodemus doesn't quite understand what Jesus is saying. And he doesn't understand how someone can be born a second time. And so then Jesus doubles down and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, people have wondered for a long time, what does Jesus have in mind when he says that you must be born of water and spirit? What's he talking about? What's, what's, what is on his mind? What does he mean by water and spirit? And so some have thought what Jesus meant by water and spirit is he's referring to baptism. Some have thought that he's referring to physical birth and spiritual birth. I think the most compelling option is actually Jesus as a good Jew, and he, he, he's proven this all through the Gospels. Jesus knew the Old Testament. I think Jesus has Ezekiel 36 on his mind when he says this to Nicodemus. And he's saying to Nicodemus, if you were going to enter the kingdom of heaven, Ezekiel 36 must happen to you. You must be washed clean. You must receive a new heart and a new spirit. That must happen in your life. That must occur in your life for you to enter the kingdom of God. Another verse where we see this would be 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5 says very plainly, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So we see to be a Christian is to be a new creation. Now as I've, you know, as I've thought about this one, uh, well, about a week ago, so my, my son, I think I got what I, my, my cold that I'm wrestling with, I think I got it for my son. He's been kind of battling a cold. And for my son, it started about a week ago. He had, he had a molar coming in, and I don't know if your kids were like this, but we've realized that for my son, when he gets a molar, when a molar's coming in, he just gets kind of sick, he gets puny, and he gets really congested. And, and so about a week ago, he had one of the worst nights of his life. He just was inconsolable from about midnight for a few hours. Now, this is me. You might be more mature than me. For me, when it's 1.30 a.m. and my son has been inconsolably crying for an hour and a half, I can have a tendency to get a little angry. My blood, I can feel my blood pressure rise and I get frustrated at the situation that I'm having to deal with. And if uh, I can take my anger out on my son or my wife at 3 a.m. and I'm not proud of it, but it's sometimes what happens. So a week ago, I feel my blood pressure rising. It's probably 2.30 in the morning. And I feel my blood pressure rising. I feel myself getting frustrated. And you know what? I had to take a step back and say to myself, David, you're a new creation. That doesn't mean life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that I'll always do what is right. And it doesn't mean that doing the right thing is always easy. And it doesn't mean that I won't need people's help. But David... Your new creation. This is, not, this is not an ideal circumstance, but you can handle this with grace. You don't have to get angry, and you don't have to take it out on your son and your wife. God's given you a new heart. He's given you a new spirit, and you can handle this unfortunate situation with grace. You know, that, that's a little bit of what I meant earlier when I said preach the gospel to yourself. We all have to do that every day. And, and as you think about this angle, to be a Christian is to be a new creation. What that means for our lives is what I just said. It doesn't mean that we're going to always do the right thing. It doesn't mean that doing the right thing is always easy. And it doesn't mean that we won't need the help of others to do the right thing. But it does mean that God has given us all the resources that we need 
to live a life of righteousness and wisdom and faith. He's given us a new heart. He's given us a new spirit. He's washed us clean. He's made us into a new creation. We can live a righteous life. That's what it means. So to be a Christian is to be a new creation. Number five, to be a Christian is to be adopted by God. To be a Christian is to be adopted by God. John chapter 1, verse 12, says, But to all who did receive him, referring to Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. So think about that verse. That verse says that those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name, they now are given the right to become a child of God. Galatians 3, verse 26, it would say that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, that verse is not excluding women. More so what it's saying is that you all, in Christ Jesus, through faith in Christ Jesus, you all possess the privileges of sonship. That's the idea. And if you're a woman in the first century and you have the option of having the privileges of being a daughter or the privileges of being a son, you're going to take the privileges of being a son because the son is going to have privileges that you're not going to have. But again, big picture, to be a Christian is to be adopted by God. Now think practically what this means for our lives. We don't all have, you know, many of us have a wonderful example of a father. I've had a great example of a father who has modeled for me the love of my heavenly father. We don't all have that. But what's, regardless of whether or not we have that example, God tells us in his word what kind of a father he is. He tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that he enjoys giving good gifts to his children and that he enjoys providing for the needs of his children. That's the kind of father he is. He tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, that when we are wayward, when we are going down a path that is destructive, that will harm us and will harm the people around us, he disciplines us because he loves us and he wants what is best for us. First Peter would tell us that as a father, God has stored up for us as our father an imperishable inheritance. You think about how fleeting an inheritance can be in this life. We're told that our Heavenly Father has an eternal inheritance that is stored up for us, that it's imperishable. It cannot be spent away. And then, you know, you think about Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 would tell us that we're, we're not an only child. God's family is not an only child family. But Mark 10 would tell us that as God's adopted son or as God's adopted daughter you now have a whole bunch of siblings. A whole bunch of siblings. You've got mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters in the faith. So there, there is, there's so much rich application when you think about to be a Christian is to be adopted by God. That's number five. And you know, even along with that, one other thing I want to say on that, you think about the application. <clears throat> Maybe you're in a place in life right now where there are some circumstances in your life that are, that are very difficult, and you've pleaded with God to change those circumstances. Maybe there's something in your family, maybe there's something at work, maybe it's something personally that you're struggling with, and you long for those circumstances to change, and God hasn't changed them. 
you know, how, how normal I think it is for, for us when we're in that circumstance to think, man, God, why have, you, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? We see the psalmist crying this out. And so I think it's a natural part of life to cry out, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Well, this angle, it gives us great ammunition to preach the gospel to ourselves because we're able to say, God, I don't know where you are in this, and I long for you to change the situation, and you haven't, but I know that you're with me. I know that you have not forsaken me. I know you haven't abandoned me because you have adopted me. You have adopted me as your son, and I can have confidence that you don't abandon your adopted children because you've told me you don't. You've told me you don't. So that's number five. To be a Christian is to be adopted by God. Number six, to be a Christian is to be forgiven. To be a Christian is to be forgiven. Matthew 26, verse 28, we're told that Jesus' blood is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' blood was poured out for what? For the forgiveness of sins. If you look at 1 John, we're told that if we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So again, I mean, as we're thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be forgiven. Forgiveness is truly at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, which helps us understand why over and over and over again, the Bible calls us to forgive our enemies and to forgive those who hurt us. You probably heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people. You probably heard that phrase. Well, we could also say, and the Bible would say, that forgiven people forgive people. The Bible would, would make that argument. Now again, that doesn't mean that forgiveness is easy. Maybe that's where you are right now. Maybe you're in a place in life where there's someone who has harmed you or hurt you, and it's hard to forgive them. This doesn't mean forgiveness is easy. And I, I, it doesn't mean that we don't have to sometimes revisit forgiveness and say, okay, no, I have chosen to forgive that person and I'm not going back there. doesn't mean we don't have to do that sometimes. But at the heart of our faith is forgiveness. I mean, we, our Savior, in almost his last breath, cried out to his heavenly father forgive the people who are crucifying me for they know not what they do almost with his last breath that was his that was his last statement so at the heart and soul of what it means to be a christian is to be forgiven and therefore doesn't mean it's easy but we are called to forgive as we have been forgiven colossians 3 is a great verse on this it talks about if anyone has something against another, forgive one another, just as the Lord God has forgiven you. We forgive because to be a Christian is to be forgiven. Number seven, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. So this word follow, if you were to, to look in the Gospels, I think that this is Jesus' favorite label or designation for a Christian. This, this phrase, to follow, it shows up over 70 times in the Gospels. And so as you think about what are Christians called in the Gospels, the most consistent label that's put on a Christian in the Gospels is follower of Jesus. 
It's used over and over again. I want to point out just two places where you see this. In Mark chapter 2, verse 14, Jesus is looking Matthew in the eyes, and you think about, what does he say to Matthew? He says to Matthew, follow me. You look at Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus says, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says that over and over and over again. He looks people in the eyes over and over and over again and says, follow me. Now, okay, what does that mean? Well, and I admit, many of the times when this word is used in the Gospels, it simply refers to a crowd that was going where Jesus was going. Jesus, you know, Jesus went here, and so the crowd followed him there. And that's oftentimes what it means in the Gospels. But there are many other times, like Mark 2 and Mark 8, where it means more than just where Jesus currently is physically, I'm going to go there. And you can't help but see that, I mean, the meaning of it is to imitate him. That, that's what Jesus is calling us to, right? He's calling us to imitate him. You think back to that Mark 8 verse. So Jesus says, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, what did Jesus do? Jesus denied himself and took up his cross. That's what he did. And so to follow him would be to do what he did, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross. And so that's what he's calling us to. He's calling us to imitate him. He's calling us to think the way that he thought to say the things that he said, to care about the things that he cared about, to live the way that he lived, to reject the things that he rejected. Now, we could talk more specifically about what those things are, but honestly, all you've got to do is go read the Bible and you'll see pretty clearly what was it that Jesus cared about? What did his heart break for? What did he love? What did he hate? To be a Christian is to follow Jesus. It's to imitate him. It's to walk the steps that he walked. So that's number seven, to be a Christian is to follow Jesus. Last one, our last angle is this, to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus. To be a Christian is to believe in Jesus. Again, I mean, this one shows up everywhere. There are so many verses I could point out, I'm just going to point out one. If you were to look at Acts 16, 30 and 31, this is where the Philippian jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And the answer is pretty simple. He says, you must believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your whole household. If, if you and your household believe in the Lord Jesus, you and your household will be saved. This is, at, again, at the heart and soul of what it means to be Christians, to believe in Jesus. It's to believe that Jesus, he truly, that Jesus was the promised son of God, the promised son of man, the promised offspring of Abraham, the offspring of David. And that he really did live and die and rise from the dead. That if you had been there with your iPhone, you could have taken a picture of it. It was real. It actually happened. And even though that was 2,000 years ago, if you believe in him today, all of these other things become true of you. You know, this one's the gateway to all the rest. If you believe in Jesus, you are united with him. You are adopted by God. You become a citizen of God's kingdom. So, these are eight angles, or eight different ways the Bible fills in this blank. To be a Christian is to be what? 
couple, I guess, closing thoughts for you. So first, you know, I mentioned that my hope is that this would equip us to more faithfully preach the gospel to ourselves. And I think you've probably picked up on what I meant by that. But as we go through life, we have to remind ourselves of what is true. And what is more helpful to remind ourselves of than our new identity in Christ? And I I just hope you see that. So, you know, a couple of examples. Maybe you're in a place in life right now where your faith it feels so dry. You know, you, you feel as if you're just robotically believing things and accepting things about who Jesus is, but it doesn't really affect your life in a personal way. You've got to preach to yourself union with Christ. No, no, no. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. It's to know God in a real and a personal way and to know his people in a real and a personal way. You know, maybe you're in a place in life, like I mentioned earlier, where you feel as if you're beyond hope because of something that you've done, you've got to preach the gospel to yourself. Well, you preach the gospel of forgiveness and salvation. And so for you, preaching the gospel to yourself is saying, no, to be a Christian is to be forgiven and saved. And yes, I have messed up, and there's going to be consequences to what I've done, and recovering from this won't be easy, but to be a Christian is to be forgiven and to be saved. And I can, I can walk through this. Uh, maybe you find yourself at 2.30 a.m. like I did, and you're, you're struggling with something, and you think it's a, a little beyond your capacity or ability. Uh, how, how often we can make excuses for ourselves and our sin patterns and say, well, that's just the way that I am. And we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves and say, no, that's, that's actually not. The Bible says that I'm a new creation. The Bible says that God's given me a new heart and a new spirit. And that doesn't mean that I'm going to live a perfect life. And it doesn't mean doing the right thing will always be easy. And it doesn't mean that I don't need the help of others. But it does mean I have a new heart and a new spirit. And I can live a righteous life. I can walk in faithfulness. I can grow. Because I have a heart of flesh and not a heart of stone. Or, you know, maybe you're in a hard spot and you're wondering, God, where are you? So you preach the gospel to yourself. You preach the gospel to yourself by you say, I am God's adopted son. He hasn't left me. He hasn't forsaken me. He hasn't abandoned me. He's with me. That's how you preach the gospel to yourself. Uh, maybe you're struggling to do the right thing. Maybe you're in a place in life where there is, there's something in front of you that looks so attractive, but you know it's the wrong thing. Maybe there's some kind of a, there's sin in your life that you, you want to do that. You, you want this thing, but you know if you do it, it's wrong. How do you preach the gospel for yourself? Well, you say, no, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to faithfully represent the kingdom that I'm a citizen of, and I'm going to follow my Savior. You know, you see what I mean? We, we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. And I have found in my own life this... These different, these different ways that the Bible fills in the blank of what it means to be a Christian immensely help me preach the gospel to myself. I hope you also see as well that, you know, if, if in your mind to be a Christian is only one of these angles, you're going to probably end up with a distorted understanding of the gospel. If in your mind to be a Christian is to be saved 
and that's all it is. If there's nothing more to being a Christian than being saved, well, you're going to probably struggle with the question that Paul asked in Romans 6. If in your mind to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus, and that's all it is, and there's nothing more to it, you're going to really struggle when you fall short. And you need to realize, no, well, to be a Christian is also to be saved and forgiven. And so we need all of these. As I said, you know, if you look at, an, if you look at a diamond from just one angle, you really don't get a full view of what that diamond is. But when we have all these different views, when we, when we look at a diamond from different angles, we really have a greater understanding of what it is. The last thing I'll say is this. You know, this is Thanksgiving. And I, my last hope for us is that we would see this morning, I mean, truly, how robust our identity in Christ is and all of the resources that God has given us. And, and that we would simply respond in kind of a Romans 11 way that we say, man, the depth and the riches and the knowledge of God, all things are from Him and through Him and to Him. What an amazing salvation that we have. And I hope that for us this morning is, as you've reflected on the things that you're thankful for this week, that we would see this morning, we have much to be thankful for in our new identity in Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for the new identity that you've given us in Christ. And I ask that you would use these different angles this morning in our lives to press into our lives and to affect us in the ways that it needs to affect us. Amen.